This year on Father's Day, what I'm interested in exploring is not fatherhood directly. Now, maybe that's a function of me not yet being a father, but there you go. What I'd like to talk about instead is masculine spirituality, or what is sometimes called the sacred masculine. And what I'd like to invite you to consider is that most of us, irrespective of our biological sex, have some masculine aspect of ourselves, as well as some feminine aspect of ourselves. In Jungian psychology, our inner masculine is called our animus. Our inner feminine is called our anima. And one of the most common examples is that in Jungian dream analysis, irrespective of your biological sex, if you see a female figure in your dreams, that represents both someone in the external world and your anima, some aspect of your inner feminine. Likewise, if there's a male figure in your dreams, that man represents both someone in the external world as well as your animus, your inner masculine, some aspect of that, some aspect of the masculine part of your unconscious. And part of the journey toward maturity, or what Jung called individuation, is integrating our conscious and our unconscious, so becoming more conscious of what was previously unconscious, which includes becoming increasingly aware of both our anima and our animus, our inner masculine and our inner feminine. And to say more about how all of us, irrespective of our biological sex, have both masculine and feminine aspects to ourselves, as well as how there are many diverse manifestations and combinations of maleness and femaleness, of masculinity and femininity, it's sometimes helpful to distinguish between gender identity, gender expression, biological sex, and attraction. So those are four components that are all each on a spectrum and can be in any sort of combination. And here's one way I've heard it described. Think of gender identity as in your mind, as in your head. So that's gender identity. Uh, inside your head, do you think of yourself as more of a man or a woman? The gender identity spectrum is, of course, further complicated by individuals who experience themselves as both a man and a woman, what's sometimes known as being two-spirit gender queer or gender less. And again, gender identity is how you think of yourself internally in your head. Gender expression is different. It's how you appear externally. So one's in your head and one's how you appear externally. How you present yourself to others. Is it more masculine or feminine? Is it more androgynous or is it gender neutral? And if gender identity, how you identify yourself in your head, and gender expression, how you present yourself to other people, seems hard to sometimes pin down, one's biological sex can seem at first to be more straightforward. It's an answer, presumably, as scientists could um, determine, uh, determined by your genes. But there's a spectrum here as well. For example, intersexuals, which you may have heard um, decades ago as hermaphrodites, have chromosomal genotypes and phenotypes that are other than simple XY or XX, 
XY for male, XX for female. And many transgender individuals also identify as male or female in a way that differs from, from what is assigned to them by biological science. Uh, if some of you are looking for summer reading, there's a new book by an author called Abigail Tartiling called Golden Boy. I just finished it a week or so ago. And it's a novel about a young boy growing up in Britain who is intersex. And it's a very, very compelling, um, hard-to-put-down uh, novel. Very, very fascinating. It's called Golden Boy. So if you, if you do read it, I'd be interested to talk to you about it. Another example, I received an email this past Wednesday. So I told you I'm leaving tomorrow morning for Louisville for the Unitarian Universalist Annual General Assembly. And so everyone that's attending received an email with the following important information about restrooms. And it read as follows. For transgender or non-gender conforming individuals, the use of public restrooms can come with emotional and physical harassment. As a step towards becoming a welcoming assembly, and we are a welcoming congregation to lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people, the restrooms inside the plenary hall, closest to the plenary hall, as well as at least one bathroom on the other floor, so this is in the Louisville Convention Center, will be designated for use by all genders. Gender-specific men's and women's restrooms are available inside the exhibit hall and other sections of the convention center. Bathrooms that are designated gender-neutral were formerly men's and women's restrooms, or they typically are in Louisville, uh, and they've been reassigned to be gender-neutral for the purposes of this event. This means that most gender-neutral restrooms will be multi-stall facilities and some will have urinals in them. So before you step up to a urinal in a restroom that's designed as gender neutral, be advised that it's probable that other gendered people will be coming in to use the stalls. For those people who might be uncomfortable walking by someone using a urinal, you may want to choose a different bathroom. Now, I actually appreciate the frankness of this email uh, and the organizers thinking through the real-world implications of their steps towards greater inclusivity. Sometimes we just say we want to be inclusive and we don't think through all the ramifications. And to continue, and this is my favorite part, in all restrooms, we ask that you trust that the individuals know which restroom is most comfortable and appropriate for them. And I see that line as potentially humorous in the sense of it being a barb that is meant to deflate the hubris of those individuals who feel they know so much about a stranger that they probably never talked to before that they know what restroom is appropriate for that stranger. But as we've been exploring, that's to mistake gender expression, the way someone may appear to you uh, externally, with gender identity, how they know themselves to be, in their head and in their experience. And that doesn't account necessarily for biological sex, which might well be much more complicated than initial appearance. If that doesn't make sense to you, read Golden Boy. Uh, the email from the UUA that I received, or that all delegates received, um, concludes that we invite compassionate and ongoing dialogue around these issues as part of our work toward right relationship. Now, that's, that's kind of a Buddhist term, um, right relationship. And it's important to remember that personal processing should not be done with transgender or gender nonconforming people unless it's solicited by them. We encourage you to contact the General Assembly chaplain, which are available 24 hours a day, if you need support in this work. Now, the meeting next week in Louisville will be my second Unitarian Universalist General Assembly, and part of what impressed me most about my first GA, which is in Phoenix last year, is precisely all the effort that went into trying to be in right relationship with one another, and it's hard work. For those of you who 
um, withstood our marathon business meeting after service here last week. It was about two hours or more. But it was good conversation. And I think, but that's emblematic of the hard work that has to go into right relationship. If all voices are going to be heard and if we're really going to come up with the best possible bylaws and statements and things like along those lines. And the first principle of Unitarian Universalism is the inherent worth and dignity of every person. And there are so many places in our culture where the able-bodied, English-speaking, straight white male continues to be the norm against which everything else is measured and seem deviant if it differs from that norm, which is convenient for me, but which can be deeply alienating for many other people. And, you know... I'm not even going <laughs> to Let that be enough. Uh, I could give you a story, but I won't. Um, we've seen the uproar that results when straight white male privilege is threatened um, in this country, is threatened to be lessened. And as you've heard me say before, it's vital to remember in multicultural work that the loss of privilege is not the same as reverse discrimination. I'll say that again. The loss of privilege, which might not have been due to you in the first place, straight privilege, white privilege, male privilege, English-speaking privilege, the loss of that privilege as we transition into a multicultural world is not the same as reverse discrimination. And Unitarian Universalism seeks to be a movement in which we are living into being a beloved community, in which we can be together as well as be ourselves in all our diversity. And speaking of right relationship, in my quick overview of gender identity, now remember that's in your head, that's how you think of yourself in your head, versus gender expression, how you present your gender to other people, and your biological sex, I neglected to mention to get to that fourth one, which is attraction or orientation. That's what's in your heart. And whether you're drawn to men or males or masculinity, or whether you're drawn to women or femininity or... Um, Females, women, females, femininity, <laughs> whether you're drawn to both or whether you're drawn to neither. I should probably reassure you at this point that all of this is related to the sacred masculine, rest assured. And part of the point that I'm trying to make is, though I haven't heard this complaint from anyone, I could imagine a woman thinking that a sermon on the sacred masculine on, Mother, on Father's Day, that doesn't have anything to do with me. Or a man thinking, a sermon on the divine feminine on Mother's Day, that doesn't have anything to do with me. It doesn't pertain to me. And part of what I'm trying to do in this quick survey of gender identity, of gender expression, of attraction, is to show that we're all on a spectrum regarding words like masculinity and femininity, perhaps more so than we often admit, or as Jung or Freud or others would say, than we're currently conscious of. And because I've been in the realm of theory so far, let me give you an example from popular culture, the first one that comes to mind. How many have seen the film Billy Elliot? Anybody? Okay. Or the musical? Anybody seen the musical? I haven't seen the musical. I've seen the film. All right. Very interesting. It's a 2000 British drama uh, that's set in northern England during a coal miner's strike in the mid-1980s. And the main character, Billy Elliot, is an 11-year-old who's biologically a boy, but who wants to be a ballet dancer, which is a traditionally feminine role, even for a male ballet dancer. And certainly it's a traditionally feminine role in the small mining town in northern England in the mid-1980s. So Billy feels called to do feminine stuff like dancing, but he doesn't want to do other feminine stuff like wear a tutu. But Billy's friend Michael 
does want to wear a tutu. He's also biologically male, and although Michael doesn't want to be a ballerina, he is interested in wearing dresses and wearing lipstick, and he's attracted to Billy, an attraction that Billy doesn't share. And being in right relationship with, with, with one another, when we sometimes have conflicting wants and conflicting desires, expectations, conceptions, understanding, it's really difficult work. But it's good work. It's meaningful work. It's potentially beautiful and transformative work that we're invited to journey toward and into together. Now, there's a lot more to be said about how our gender norms and our gender expectations are socially constructed. But for now, let me say it this way as a continued invitation for all of us to consider the ways in which the sacred masculine and the sacred feminine may apply to all of us, irrespective of our biological sex. If you identify as female, do you sometimes wear pants or shorts instead of a dress? Are you wearing pants or shorts right now? Do you have short hair, sometimes play sports, or vote in elections? You know, crazy things like that. (laughs) Remember that the United States of America has had the right to vote for women for less than a century. I mean, I think that's not to be forgotten, not that you are forgetting it. Uh, Do you work outside the home? Do you want the freedom, if you choose, to be a religious leader, a corporate executive, even president of the United States? All of the above at one time or even now in some circles are reserved for men or considered as masculine traits or masculine roles. And I invite you to consider if the women's liberation movement can, in this sense, be seen at least partially as an expression of both a healthy masculinity and a healthy femininity, perhaps even tapping into the sacred masculine and the sacred feminine, all within single individuals. Or to flip the tables, is Billy Elliot's drive to be a ballerina in a misogynist culture, and you could also say in a misandrous culture, one that's uh, acting against men, and his friend Michael's transgressive cross-dressing and same-sex attraction, is that also related to a yearning for the wholeness of a healthy and sacred masculinity and femininity within a single individual? Now, for related reasons, some men choose to stay home and to cook and to be the primary caregiver for children, which are considered traditionally feminine roles. To use classical archetypes, masculine energy is often described as bright, hot, hard, active, above, up, external, solid. Feminine energy, in turn, is traditionally described as dark, cool, soft, still, down, interior, empty. The perceived value of those two sets of words is almost inevitably shaped by our culture's misogyny and sexism. The invitation, however, is to experience the sense in which almost everyone has the potential to realize a healthy masculinity and a healthy femininity within themselves over the course of a lifetime. And there are times when each of us needs to run bright, hot, hard, active, above, up, and external and times when each of us needs to turn inward to the dark, the cool, the soft, the still, the down, and the empty. And I invite you to consider which of those seasons do you currently find yourself journeying through, as well as how this relates to the waxing and the waning of masculine and, spirit and feminine energy within yourself or within those closest to you. And when I add the word sacred to these classic archetypes, as in sacred masculine, 
or sacred feminine. At least part of what I'm referring to is the transformation that happens when our individual masculine and feminine energy is experienced as part of a larger whole, what we Unitarian Universalists like to call the interdependent web of all existence. In contrast, the unhealthy masculine tends to be narcissistic, always acting impulsively without consideration of the impact on others. Perhaps you can imagine some hypothetical scenarios in which you've seen this. Uh, in the words of theologian Matthew Fox, this unhealthy hypermasculine in the extreme is that in which male means winning at all costs being number one in sports, business, politics, and academia, going to war in the sense of kill or be killed, being rational, uh, not emotional, because boys don't cry. It means embracing homophobia, the fear of male affection. It means domination, and it means lording over others, whether nature, one's own body, women's bodies, or others. This for, these forms of masculinity reveal themselves in empire building and in witch burning in inquisitions and crusades, in the banishing of the goddess and the divine feminine, and in making a scapegoat of pleasure and of sexuality. This chauvinistic style of masculinity is one-sided and is characterized again by power over instead of power with. A tragic recent example is the release of a report that 26,000 people in the U.S. armed forces were sexually assaulted last year alone. 26,000 people, up from 19,000 in 2010. These numbers represent masculine spirituality gone tragically awry. In religious circles, another all-too-common example of masculine spirituality gone awry is when the sacred masculine metaphor of Father Sky of looking up in awe and wonder and feeling connected to the beauty of the cosmos which is meant to balance that sacred feminine metaphor of Mother Earth, when that devolves into a literal understanding, not of Father Sky, that we're meant to be connected almost in a familial relationship with, when that becomes a literal Sky Father. Um, the worship of a literal male human being, seemingly that's godlike, who is imagined to live in the sky and sit in judgment of humanity, in contrast to the potentially life-giving metaphor of Father Sky, a sky father is often an incarnation, an anthropomorphized incarnation of the worst and most unhealthy aspects of masculine energy. That bright, hot, hard, active, above, up, external, totally unrelated to us. And such misunderstandings lead to harmful theological claims like God, understood as a sky father, punished a group or a city with natural disasters, tsunamis, earthquakes, hurricanes, or it's, I mean, it's just, it's a 21st century of Zeus hurling down um, lightning bolts from Mount Olympus. It's a sky father. And conveniently, where a sky father theology reigns, men tend to be beneficiaries, and men have often been the writers and editors of sacred scripture. And don't be fooled by the propaganda you'll sometimes hear that we cloister our women at home, or we don't let them drive, or we keep their bodies covered up because we respect them so much. We want to protect them and to put them up on a pedestal. I've heard this so many times. The truth, as feminist theologian Mary Daly liked to say, is that where God is male, male is God. At the same time, a fuller truth is that patriarchal cultures are deeply unhealthy for men as well. 
Men become deeply wounded when they spend a lifetime living a chauvinistic hyper-masculinity. And if unhealthy masculinity is the only way that you know how to live, the only way that's been modeled for you, perhaps by unhealthy father figures like Daedalus that we heard of earlier, then Fox writes that the only way to survive that you know is to live in the world without having vulnerability. These men develop an armor and an ability to move through this world that requires men to exhaust themselves in order to make money. Do you know anyone like that? Does that sound sometimes familiar? Someone who develops an emotional armor to move through the world without, without vulnerability and who exhausts themselves to make money or because their self-worth is all wrapped up in their job, what they do, not in who they are. Again, that's masculine energy gone awry. Now, to be honest, I can identify with the seductive lure of efficiency, of wanting to get things done and to check things off my to-do list. But the shadow side is that such a relentless approach to life can be exhausting. It can lead to burnout, to flashes of anger or impatience. And ironically, all that emotional armor that's meant to protect from vulnerability can impede genuine growth and maturity, which sometimes comes only through pain. Joseph Jastrub, who's written about masculine spirituality, says a troubling notion for many men is the possibility that we do not gain wisdom through our victories, but through our defeats. We often don't gain wisdom through our victories, but through our defeats. I said earlier that when I use the term sacred masculine or sacred feminine, at least part of what I'm referring to is when the masculine and feminine energy within us is experienced as part of a larger whole, what we you use like to call the interdependent web of all existence as our seventh principle. And in our age of climate change, perhaps one of the most powerful manifestations of the sacred masculine is the call to invest in alternative energies. Our current use of fossil fuels, of fracking, of mountaintop removal mining is a classic and tragic example of unhealthy masculine energy that is all about power over Mother Earth, taking what we want without regard for replenishment or the impact on future generations. As some writers have contended, rape is not too strong a word to use for how we have treated Mother Earth. With our, in our industrial age, with our masculine energy gone awry. In contrast, the search for sustainable, closed-loop energy sources is a compelling example of power with instead of power over. And the critical difference between power over and power with is compassion, the ability to sympathize and be in relationship with other people. The difference is love. And when Ben, our pianist for this morning, suggested the E.E. E. Cummings poem, which you heard earlier in the spoken meditation, as a piece we could use for today's offertory, it struck me that a love poem is perhaps precisely appropriate for a sermon on the sacred masculine. Love is what makes all the difference in moving toward a healthy masculine. It's what makes all the difference in becoming a kind and compassionate father, or grandfather, or great-grandfather, caring not only about yourself, but deeply feeling connected to another person. In Cummings' words, I carry your heart with me. I carry it in my heart. I am never without it. Anywhere that I go, you go. That's the interdependent web of all existence. 
So as the sermon draws to a close, I invite you to hear the final stanza of that poem once more. You'll hear the whole poem again in a few minutes for the offertory. As you listen, I invite you to open your heart, to feel the transformative compassion of becoming more connected with everyone in this room and everything. If it's meaningful to you to think these ways, to feel connected to Father Sky and to Mother Earth as familially related to them, and to feel connected to everyone and everything around the world in the interdependent web of all existence. I invite you to open yourselves to the energies that you may be able to feel stirring within you of the sacred feminine and of the sacred masculine. In the words of E.E. E. Cummings, here is the deepest secret that nobody knows. Here is the root of the root and the bud of the bud and the sky of the sky of a tree called life which grows higher than any soul can hope or mind can hide. And this is the wonder that's keeping the stars apart. I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart.